everyone and welcome to the SOC podcast. That's some ornithological chat brought to you by the Scottish Ornithologists Club. I am joined today by Paul French. Uh, so Paul, for the listeners, please tell us who you are, where you are and what you do. Uh, good evening, Mark. Um, well, yeah, I'm Paul. Um, I'm living in Easington down on the East Yorkshire coast. Uh, and I, I guess I'm here in my capacity as the uh, British Birds Rarities Committee Chairman. I hope that's the capacity you're hearing, because that's what the questions are about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah. That's, uh, let's that's just that. launch into the questions. The first question I have is, how do you feel about being replaced as the face of Zeiss? Does it make it sort of easier to go down the shops and do normal person stuff these days? <laughs> it does, and it gives me lots of ammunition against James Lidster. So that, that, that's the most important thing. But walk, yeah. walking into the Zeiss tent at the, uh, the bird fair and seeing Lidster's face everywhere all over the... Uh, over the Zeiss advertising was brilliant. <laughs> okay, let's get let's get down to business. Okay, let's transport ourselves to a different world, a very similar world to the one we live in, but one where nobody has ever assessed any rarities before. There are no ten rare men or one rare lady as there is these days. Do you think that the birding scene would be much the same as it is now if that was the case? Uh, yeah, was, it's a difficult one. Because, yeah, I think possibly broadly, if people wanted to go and watch birds and find rarities, then yeah, to that degree, it would be broadly the same. Um, but equally, I think there'd be quite some significant differences. Um, namely, I mean, you know, would anyone have any confidence at all in any rare bird records, especially ones sort of before the photographic era? Um, I mean, it's, it's hard enough. It's hard enough to know now, really, with 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 a lot of records. But you know, at least there's been a, 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 a rigorous process that they've all gone through. Uh, I think if that didn't exist or had never existed, then it would be uh, it would be very difficult to have any confidence in, in in a lot of records. Do you think that we'd have a scenario where there'd be more sort of I'm going to avoid names, but there'd be more people setting themselves up as sort of policemen and um, <laughs> trying to keep tabs on things? You know, um, well. <laughs> The thing is, it's difficult to think those processes through without then arriving at the logical conclusion of a rarities committee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think I think if 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 there had never been a rarity committee, you know, sort of no one had thought about setting one up. Yeah, I, I mean, there'd be no sort of there'd be no uh, books or, or 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 papers on rarity occurrences. There'd be no. Um, the, yeah, it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be different. Identification criteria could be years behind. That's because, you know, yeah, a lot of ID on difficult species has been driven by vagrants. You know, you know things, like, things like Blythe's pipits and stuff like that. You know, that's not through people studying them in Mongolia. That's through people studying them as vagrants in, in Europe. You know, and, and even now, I mean, it's, we are, you know, we get sort of accused of being going slow with things like... Um, the Isabline Shrikes complex and the, the Siberian Stonechat complex and all that. But eventually, through studying the vagrants, it will become a much more robust criteria to identify these birds in future. Yeah, um, I think so, that's that's a really good point. I do like that one. So let's just continue to live in this fantasy world, if you like, where <laughs> where nobody assesses any rarities. Somebody, for the reasons that you state, decides it's a good idea. And they say, I know. We'll get the X face of Zeiss to come up with the <laughs> the means of assessing all these rarities. If you had to set up the process by yourself today, how would it look? Would it look the same, do you think, or, or would it be different in any way? Well, of course, the way I'd set it up could be totally different to the way you or somebody else would set it up. But knowing what I know about sort of lots of different rarities committees and other ways of assessing rarities, yes, I think I would set it up the same as it is now um with the with the proviso that it was a country like britain is now you know with lots of birders uh and and lots of rarities basically i think you know if you were living out on i don't know vanuatu or something and you, you had like one rarity every 10 years it'd be totally pointless mm. so with i think there's there's, there's basically going to be some kind of sliding scale of, of relevance between going the full hog for a rarities committee and all and at the other end i think something like like the ebird model or bird trap model where you just sort of put your sightings into a into citizen science and 
um, well, people just sort of accept or reject that record. I thought a lot about the sort of the, the, the eBird model a few years ago, actually, it was sort of, I was in correspondence with the sort of the Portuguese committee about stuff and they were thinking about how they were going to move forward. And it was it was a really good thought exercise about uh, the pros and cons of both systems, really. I think that it's impossible for certainly for the most difficult or for the rarest species, it's impossible to get past this idea that, you know, there's some sort of panel of experts that that review these things. You know, I'm, I'm not not desperate to make any changes or anything like that. But when I think about perhaps the criticisms that are leveled against rarities committees, such as, you know, it takes it takes a year and a half to find out whether you've whether you did see a ruler, for example. Um, could there be some sort of fast tracking, do you think? Or I guess the problem there is it, there's a line that has to be drawn somewhere and it's it's knowing where to draw that line, isn't it? Somebody has to say that's difficult enough to be assessed properly. That's simple enough to be assessed by one or two people. Yeah, so um, we we uh, we do have that. Um, we have a, a motorway system in place. Uh, so basically, well, I don't know what it's called motorway, but anyway, um, so the panel split into north and south. Uh, and most records only go to half the committee, uh, which I'm not sure everyone knows. But anyway, most records are most records are well photographed and they're species which are not that challenging to identify. So a submission comes in, it's got loads of photos, it's got, you know, it's a it's a roller. You know, you don't need the full committee to assess that. Yeah. Um so um so that only goes to, to half the committee, depending on geography, you know, where it is. Um so obviously this this recent Devon roller will go to the southern half. And well then, you know, I don't I don't wish to preempt or jump the gun, but no no doubt that will get accepted because it's a roller. And then that that is actually put into the work in progress file. So, you know, <laughs> The working progress file is updated more often than the annual report, but only maybe like twice a year because it is a heck of a job to keep it going. You know, it, it's I think it's it's worth remembering that you know the committee, yes, we, we don't have to do this, so everyone kind of sets themselves up to do it and needs to do a good job doing it. But by the same token, everyone sort of volunteers effectively uh, and does it all in their spare time. Um, so there is sort of a, a, a delay, you know, but that, I mean, you know, it's if it's something like a, a roller, then you know people should have fairly co good confidence that it's 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 going to get through if it's got loads of photos. If it was a, a brief flyby on the butt of Lewis and was the first for the Western Isles and it was seen briefly by one person, then that's a different story. You know, that's yeah. so you say that some you know a lot of these well photographed rarities they go into this this motorway system. Do you think that descriptions are less valuable than they used to be? So I'm thinking about when I mean talk, I'm talking about written descriptions, not not of descriptions that come with photographs or sound recordings. It feels to me like a system that was set up 70 years ago when the vast majority of people who were finding rare birds probably didn't really know what they were looking at, so they described the bird. Whereas these days, the vast majority of serious rarity finders, after they've finished their whiskey, they could they could write you a pretty good description of, of pretty much most of the rare birds that turn up in the UK. I think it's you, no secret that think. Photographs are. Uh, <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> it, it, it's no secret that photographs are incredibly useful and probably the easiest way of getting a rarity accepted. How valuable is the written description these days? I would say, in the in the majority of cases, still very valuable because you get the extra information that you that you don't that you don't get from a, from a photograph. A, you need you obviously need all the the, the boring details about you know where it was who who saw it you know and all this kind of stuff the the dates the times the all 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 that sort of all the the boring stuff that goes with any kind of record but um the written description can add so much more to a photo to a photograph and, and and especially with with more tricky species uh, and and it, lots of occasions photographs are not actually that useful um you know so, so lot, exactly lots of seabird records um yeah. Although that, that's kind of getting a bit better nowadays. But yeah, even things like um, like the stone chats we talked about earlier, Stenica stone chat, you know, some, you, you get a different series of photographs, especially maybe even got worse in the digital age, the different sort of white balances and color palettes that people are using. So you can't, you're not really, your confidence in a lot of these pictures is fairly low. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there was, there was a young, I'll say Isabeline Shrike on Shetland a couple of years ago, and different photographs made it look completely different. 
you know, and then people have to put in their notes, actually, you know, it's that that photograph there, that's the one that looks like the bird. You know, yeah, that photograph, yeah. something's gone wrong with the colours. But unless you have someone to tell you that, you have you don't know who to trust or, or what to trust. <laughs> you, yeah, I, I noticed you backpedalling from who to trust. <laughs> so, yes, the ways that we document rarities has changed over the years. Are acceptance rates changing as well or are they reasonably constant? Right. I've actually got a graph of that. A graph? I've got That's a graph. useful on a podcast. Yeah, it's, this is brilliant for radio. <laughs> I, I could show it you if you want, but, um, but I have got a fantastic graph. And it shows the, the not, I've got the not proven rate. So the rejection okay. rate, the not proven rate, which is yeah. effectively, yeah. So you could just flip that. The same thing really, isn't it? It is, it is. Do you know what? I'm gonna I, I'm gonna share my screen with you just for okay. the benefit of the viewers at home. You just so you can hear hear, hear Mark. If you can email it to me and we yeah. can when the podcast goes out, we will put it out, we'll tweet it out with the you know, with the podcast yeah, yeah. link. Okay. There you go. Ah. My eyesight's not good enough to read the years, but I see a peak in the middle and it's sort of so the, it's a these bit like orange, the bell curve, really, isn't it? Yeah. So so the orange bars are basically what is that? That's the total number of submissions, okay? Mm -hmm. So you have this number of submissions that climbs and climbs and climbs till you get to a peak. Well, so I started in 1950. This is obviously great radio. But anyway, so I started in 1950 and we go up to the to a peak in about the late 80s in 1990. That was when we had the okay. most number of submissions, like 1,200 submissions in a year. Wow. Yeah. And then that's actually declined off. But the, the main reason for that is because we've obviously got rid of quite a lot of species. Yeah, this yeah. is when, when we were still doing like ringneck ducks and, you know, um, grey white egrets and all, all those kind of species that have now gone. So that's that's why that's why the number of submissions has gone. But, but the green line is the, is the important one because that's the percentage of records that we found not proven. So that's on these figures here. So yeah. back, back in 1966, it was sort of over, it was about 26% of records were found not proven. Whereas now, I mean, it, it goes around a lot of the place, but the... the the rate is coming down a lot and i think you're right it's probably because the, the prevalence of photos so many submissions have photographs but now we're, we're down sort of what 12 13 percent in the last couple of years and do you think that perhaps something to do with that's that's something to do with the fact that you know everyone has a digital camera everyone has taken a picture of everything they're seeing and they're all putting their stuff on social media and they're saying oh i went out and i saw a thick build warbler today and then someone else ch chimes in and says, actually, that's a bullfinch. And uh, and so it doesn't get submitted. So yeah. it's almost like there's a sort of a an initial filter of of stuff before it gets submitted. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I th there's also, I mean, we do get quite a lot of records from people. Well, I say quite a lot, you know, several records a year from people who are evidently not birders. Mm -hmm. And they've just happened to find or, or think they've found an obvious species like a snowy owl or a black stork or something yeah. like that you know and they're to be honest they're always very difficult records to assess because you know non-birders make a you know a good attempt at writing a description but sometimes it's they leave out large important parts like you know talking like saying the, the black stalk's like five feet high or something four feet high <laughs> so it's it's um yeah it's, it's difficult and i think so those those also feed into the into the um the not proven rate mm -hmm um even even i mean it's even some records with photographs still get found not proven because you know the photographs aren't good enough and people rely too much on them so is or, there any... or occasionally it's provable that it's not the species <laughs> so i guess that must happen very few times though it is actually quite rare yeah 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 and yeah. um, are there any particular species that that sort of drive these uh not proven rates or any but any species that have high rates, higher than normal rates of acceptance or lower than normal rates of acceptance. I'm going to... I've got another chart. Well, before you before you show me and nobody else your chart, I'm going <laughs> to... I had a little think about this and I yep. thought... I was trying to work out what sort of species it would be. And I thought that... So it could be like a flyover or some sort of species that generally gives bad views or some sort of cryptic or emergent species or something that's prone to hybridization. Am I on the right lines there? Um, well, we'll start with. So there's there's quite there's a few species that have got a hundred percent rejection rate well, because they, okay. they're not they're not they're not on the British list. Okay, so, right. you know, and, and a few races and stuff like that. So we'll start with a proper species, and it has the highest rejection rate, uh, and it, it is a proper species. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do I have to try and work out what it is? 
if if you want to, you can have you can. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't want to say twenty guesses because that'll get quite tedious. No, but, um, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say from my sort of thinking earlier and my list of suggestions. So is this is this a number of rejections or a proportion of rejected records? Proportion. Okay, proportion. I'm gonna go with Pallid Swift. Oh, that's it's a good guess, but it's it's nowhere near the top. Oh really? Like, okay. I can't I can't even see it on the list. It's so far down. Okay. okay. Uh, my other my other one that was leaping out to me was Iberian Chiff Chaff. Uh, again, no, because most actually that that's probably got quite a high acceptance rate because most birds are singing. Okay. Right. Well, I'm I'm obviously way off track then. So the highest rejection rate. Um, I feel like this needs some kind of drum roll or. A, <laughs> I'll put oh. that in. That's an effect. I'll have that in. <laughs> Uh, it's actually uh, Yoko and Shearwater. Ah, okay. But there's only been, what, three or four submissions for that? A lot more than that. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So it's, yeah, there's there's, there's obviously one accepted record. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they've, we've had um, 15 not provens. So that's that's actually quite interesting in itself. You know, does, does that mean that, that we're being too harsh on Yoko and Shearwaters, which I suspect is not the case, actually? But um, you know, it's certainly, certainly something to to think about. Now you, mm. you can see the figures sort of in front of me like that. The, the second one's really surprising. I'm actually very surprised this is um, number two, but it's got a ninety percent rejection rate. Uh, South Pole Obscura. That's very close, but it's oh. no. Can you see my list? No. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could. <laughs> no, but it's amazing. It's a red-throated thrush. Ah, oh, because of the hybridization issue. I guess so, but I I don't actually remember assessing a red throated thrush record in the last sort of fifteen years or so. So I wonder if they're all old old records that were all sort of found not proven in sort of the sixties, seventies. I don't know. So where does South Polar Skewer come? Next but one. Oh wow. Oh well. I'm feeling well, good about myself. It's 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 grouped as southern skewers. So Yeah, okay. We'll we'll, we'll give you that. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll yeah. I'll reward myself with a sip of whiskey. <laughs> But yeah, the, the next one after Red Throated Thrush is uh, Redhead. So yeah, I guess I did think about that. So species that go through reviews yeah. probably end up having quite high re- yeah. rates of rejection. Yeah, and Redhead had a you know a small review of the records, and uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the species that you know there's, there's obviously potential for confusion with hy- with hybrids. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's going to have a high rejection rate. An interesting red Redhead is obviously a very rare bird in the Western Palearctic. You know, when you, when you look at records from Iceland or the Azores, there's just there's hardly any. Mm. So it's always going to be a very rare bird. So when we were emailing about this before we uh, before we started, you said to me, this is only going to be interesting if it's controversial. <laughs> so yeah. my question is, if you had to implement one of the following, if you had to, which would it be and why? So your options are publishing reasons for not proven records, publishing observer names for not proven records, or only accepting records for photographed or videoed sound recorded birds. So I can I can only do I have to do one of them. I mean you can do them all if you want, but <laughs> <laughs> so if I had to do the, the the one I would I would sort of relent at it first would be publishing reasons for not proven records. The main the main reason not to do so, I guess, is because it's actually quite dull. In mm. that most of them would end up just saying you know, not enough detail and description or some some yeah. you know, words to that effect. Yeah. Uh, and that would be most of them. I can't imagine we'd we'd like to get too controversial in, in that anyway. No. No. Because yeah, you, you you're sort of yeah yeah, you're dealing with people sort of um people's lives in in in, in some respects. But it's certainly very emotional, isn't it? You know indeed, indeed. you you can sort of really pull the rug from someone when you uh sort of tell them that their record hasn't been accepted. I yeah. could understand why people would be upset about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so what I do do is um, I actually I do write to every observer, mm-hmm. not prove records, and, and and tell them the reasons why not. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and yeah, I think that <laughs> if any if anyone's had a had one of those letters, then um, the, the feedback to them is sort of ninety five percent really good, um, and then you get you know a couple sort people of say. Yeah, you get a couple of get shirty, but it's not. Um, it's just basically like, oh well, that's that's a load of rubbish. But never mind. Uh, is, is there anyone you have to avoid these days? No, well, I've only I've only <laughs> I'm not going to mention. I've only ever had one person come up to me 
and, really? uh, and, and, and jab his finger into my chest. But he was quite considerably <laughs> smaller than me, so I wasn't too worried. Uh, <laughs> I think so they do in Holland, for example, or the Netherlands, uh, as they like to be called, and France, they do publish uh, reasons for yeah. not proven records. And my my French is reasonable enough that I can look through that report. And you're right, the vast majority of the of the records say the description didn't have enough detail to eliminate species X and species Y, or crucial crucial details on the undertail coverts were not noted, or you know, it was, it was it's almost always that. But there are occasions where it says uh, uh, photographs of the bird were supplied, and it was a chiff chaff and not a dusky warbler. Yeah. You know, yeah, and that's the sort of thing that I, I guess that people might not like to see in print exactly and the thing is that who does that benefit you know that 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 doesn't really that doesn't benefit the wider birding public apart from it, the sort of the voyeurism of saying oh it, look at that it benefits um, gossips like me but you're exactly, right it doesn't benefit anyone else no so you know it's i mean what, what is a benefit is is sort of um coming up with uh papers and stuff and, and more in-depth articles about like, like let's say yelko and shearwaters you know why are we rejecting so many yelko and shearwaters mm. now that would be worthy of discussion um but not not individual records on a on an ad hoc basis just to say you know oh well it was too far away and there was an obviously obviously a squirrel going through and you couldn't see any details you know or something yeah. like that i think there's a way there's a way to do these things and i think at the moment we're probably doing it right in as much as going right into the observers and telling them mm -hmm. you know you do well, I mean, if you've been doing this for however long you've been doing it and you've only had fingers jabbed into your chest once then that suggests that you are doing it right or it certainly suggests that you aren't doing it wrong yeah well yeah that's yes i'll go with that yeah okay let's have a slight change of tack this isn't really a question for about bbrc but more of a question of record assessment in general do you think that in general, we apply the most rigor to the least valuable records. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I've, yeah. I've given this a bit of thought, and yes, but I guess it depends on how you define valuable. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, I don't think there's any way around it. Really, we sort of, you know, if you if you want this sort of scene, this rarity knowledge, you have to have this sort of you apply these standards to them because they're rare. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, because I, you know, I, I don't want my, if I put in a record of 10 blue tits from my garden, I don't, you know, someone turns around and says, we don't believe you, then that's you kind of, where, where'd you go with that? Um, but by the same token, I, I suspect there may well be mileage in having more rigorous standards with commoner species such as willow tit, marsh tit. Um, what else was there? Um, oh, twite. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, these kind of things which which have always been sort of low density or, or rare breeders and, and and the declines have been quite dramatic. You know, maybe if there had been a more rigorous quality in their sort of record submission going back 20, 30, 40 years, then maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe... I mean, the example that springs to my mind is wood warbler. So up in northeast Scotland, wood warbler is a very rare bird now. I mean, it it's an irregular breeder and it seldom turns up on passage and barred warbler has always just been a scarce migrant and we can tell you exactly how many accepted records of barred warbler there are but there is some confusion over how good the records of wood warbler in recent years right. have been okay, okay. and the, the simple solution to that is that the local records committee yeah. assesses assesses wood warblers but it's i think it's a cultural thing i think that we are sort of, sort of semi-obsessed with rarity and the, the glamour of it all and while it might be more useful or as useful to assess records of wood warbler marsh tit willow tit blackfooted diver pomerang skewer etc that just doesn't interest us so much perhaps <laughs> so we're much more interested in knowing how many white rump sandpipers there have been and how many american golden plovers and stuff like that but i think that going back to something you said earlier about standards you know, I had no idea about record assessment until I was maybe sort of 10 or 11 and I was reading Bill Oddie's Little Black Bird book and he's talking about rarities committees. And, you know, I was a sort of very enthusiastic birder back then and it suddenly made me realise that there were standards, you know, in, in two ways, standards on 
I'm I'm expected to achieve some sort of standard of observation, and there are standards of observer as well. And as soon as that dawned on me, then you know that was a real driver for me to try and get better at birding. And I think that that's something that's possibly one of the legacies of a rarities committee that is sort of less well explored, perhaps, is how it's developed. You've touched on how rarities committees have furthered our knowledge in, you know, on the identification of individual species or groups of species. But I think it could be interesting to look into how having rarities committees in place has developed the sort of general level of birder in the birding community. That's the end oh, of my waffle. Yeah, <laughs> I was, I was enjoying that. I think, I think, I think that's, 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 that's a very good point. Yeah, no, knowing there's a standard does drive you to be better. Yeah. On the flip side of that, what we can say is that there aren't that, as far as I can work out, there aren't that many examples of where records of assessed rarities have gone on to be used for scientific or conservation benefit. I can think of one, but I'm sure you can think of some more. So I think I, th I think this is actually very difficult. So I did actually found a friend on this one. Okay. So are you going to drop drop a name? No. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, I, I, um, yeah. Uh, you, you've forgotten who it is. <laughs> I was thinking I didn't phone him. I emailed him, but that's not <laughs> that's not important at all. Let's, let's, not, let's not stutter over over communications. Um, yeah, I, I got in touch with Alex Lees, and I said, well, I can't think of any. Can you think of any? And he, and he couldn't. Uh, and um, but it's sort of a. I, th I don't think that should detract from the study of vagrancy overall. Mm -hmm. In individual vagrancy is is a different sort of you know uh, individual species perhaps, but but vagrancy overall is actually I think it's probably quite an important thing to study because you know it's the they're, they're sort of the, potentially the vanguard of of colonisation events. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're they're the harbingers of of climate change. They're you know there's a whole suite of of sort of factors that they that, that they can they can alert us to. You know, you know, vagrancy is science. It's um, yeah, just because they're they're rare birds and we like them doesn't mean that they're not valuable. Just because we mm -hmm. might not want them to be valuable. So I guess what you could say is that there is value in them, but we haven't really used them to their full potential. Possibly. I mean, you know, sort of vagrancy events drive evolution. Mm. Or, well, they can drive evolution. You know, it's like if you look at like Hawaiian honeycreepers, all descend from a vagrancy event of of a rose finch ancestor to Hawaii over many years ago and Madagascar being colonized by by, by vagrants via the Indian Ocean Islands and you know, diversifying to the Vangas I mean if, if you, you wouldn't have helmet Vanga if it wasn't for vagrancy of some unknown species eons ago um, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that we're going to get you know pipits turning into helmet Vangas in uh, in Norfolk but um, <laughs> it'd be nice how long until that makes it into one of your submissions? So I believe this is a newly evolved <laughs> vagrant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I suspect it will happen this year. <laughs> right, we need to we need to move on. So before we ask you the birdery questions, uh, I just want a couple of predictions from you. Oh, and yeah. Some of them might be less predictions than um, you know, little sort of what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, a little bit of a, a nod from someone in the know. So. What are the next? What do you think the next species to be dropped from the BBRC list are going to be? So we look at these every year at the AGM, and um, the secretary Chaz he comes up with this sort of list every year of the species which are hovering there or thereabouts at our criteria levels. Um, and I should have got this up to read because I always forget what it is. But it's uh, so our criteria for a rarity is it has to be less than 100 records in the last 10 years, the last rolling 10-year period, uh, and or um, more, sorry, less than 10 records in seven of the last 10 years. Does that make sense? More than 10 records in seven of the last 10 years. Less than 10 records. Well, I'll, I'll edit, I'll keep the let's right edit, bit in let, the edit. Let's edit this bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. So it's, it's, it's less than 100 records in the last 10-year rolling period and less than 10 records in yes. seven of the last 10 years. OK, yes, um, yes, I get it. Yeah, that only took me 20 minutes to get right. 
and you realize i'm not going to cut any of that out. <laughs> uh so yeah i mean but oh god this basically this, this is where it gets complex it works the opposite way around as well for for birds to be uh dropped from the list mm-hmm. and i'm sure people can work out what that would be yeah yeah but let's not go through that again <laughs> no let's not go through that again so so yeah, so the species that are hovering around the the, the boundary for, to be dropped. Well, th- there's no surprises for uh, red throated pipit, rusted bunting. It's it's really annoying because you know you, you get these things and you, they're sort of they're hovering around the limit, and you look at the the, the trends. So well, this is what we're doing here. We, we look at the trend and you go, oh, okay, red throated pipit. It's on a it's on a it's on a slight decrease. It's hovering around about the limit. It's a slight decrease in trend, so it's only going to get worse. Let's just stick it on the list. And of course, as soon as you stick it on the list, the records go through the roof. Yeah. And exactly the same thing happened with rusty bunting. You know, rusty bunting. It's just like, well, you know, they're they're declining hugely in Norway. You know, they're, they're they seem to be declining in various parts of Scandinavia. Um, the records are going down. Let's put it back on the list. And as soon as you do that, they find new birds breeding in scandinavia and the, the records go through go through the roof again they're, they're common on shetland and stuff so yeah it's you never get these things right but we what we also try and do is once we've made a decision to drop something from the list or bring something on we try and not change that again for 10 years okay because this yo-yo thing of you know like if you look back through the list you know lesser scorp sorry uh Frugius duck um, rusty bunting savage warbler they've come on and they've gone off they've come on they've gone off and it's you know it doesn't it's not good for anything really yeah so um yeah so we we will we'll leave it for 10 years from from our last decision for those but so yeah retro pipit rustic savvies again they're increasing um i do wonder if that's habitat driven as much as anything else you know more and more recreation yeah yeah but the surprise one possibly is bonaparte school oh really yeah, that's becoming almost, you know, almost a scarce migrant now. Oh, wow. OK. And what about species that are going to be added to the list because, they're, you know, they used to be regular and becoming rarer? So, for example, SBRC have gone through a, a recent exercise looking at trends of less rare, rare birds, for example. And if the trends carry on for certain species, we will be assessing records for some really surprising birds like Black Neck Grieve and Buick Swan, which yeah. are both already less than 10 records per year in scotland yeah do you think there are any species that are sort of on on that sort of cusp for for the uk well, i guess blackneck grieve for scotland would tie into our previous conversation about you know non-rarities having been assessed and having a better yes. handle on their, exactly. on their status yeah. yeah um so but yeah so for us for for bbrc and actually this is pertinent to scotland as well uh so pendulum tip no longer qualifies as a rarity and there's still no Scottish records. Yeah, yeah. But um, it, we only bought it back on the list less than 10 years ago. So we're, we're going to keep it on for the, for the time being and see what happens. Um, another two species that are decreasing in numbers are quite surprisingly American Widgeon and Ringbill Gull. So those, those two, yeah, it may well be that Ringbill Gull swapped to Bonaparte's Gull. You know, who'd have thought that a few years ago? Are they due perhaps to um, sort of long-staying birds, you know, birds that have stayed for a long time on this side of the Atlantic, you know, shuffling off this mortal coil, yeah. and 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 we're now back to previous sort of rarity rates, I guess, uh, vagrancy rates. Possibly. I mean, f- finding a new ringbill gull was always a rare event anyway. Yes. You know, it was. It was. They're mostly returning birds. And there was a lovely um, paper in Scottish Birds recently tying records of ring build goal from around central scotland to the same individual yeah yeah indeed you know there's a there's a is he, is he sat tagged there's a ring build goal that's breeding now in russia i think is it yes, russia or belarus yeah. Poland something or something like that. Like that. yeah but that's been tagged tracked all the way through europe um but but yeah i think um there's obviously a lot of returning birds and they, you know they they if they came across as first years then they obviously migrate and can, can return and, and and live out their life being seen over here but yeah, the number of the number of new first year birds being seen on an annual basis is, is decreasing. I actually yeah. can't remember the last time I saw a first year in Bulgol. I can, but I couldn't tell you what year it was. East East Coast first first year East Coast ring Bulgol. Well, that would be never for me. Yeah, yeah, it's just they just. <laughs> I mean, it's monstrously rare, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, we 
don't have all night, unfortunately. So we're going to listen to some bird sounds now. And then after that, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about some less controversial stuff. Although you answered the previous question so well that none of it sounded controversial at all. So back in a minute after these bird noises. So onto the bird noises then. I asked Paul to nominate some bird sounds for this middle section with a eye on the sort of rarity theme of this podcast. And I think that Paul's choices will need no introduction, so I'll just play them and you'll know instantly what they are. I was, of course, being extremely sarcastic. So as Paul has asked me to look at the calls of some extreme rarities, things that go chack in bushes, he suggested. So the calls you heard were Siberian Blue Robin, and then Siberian Ruby Throat, and then Rufus-tailed Robin. So I know nothing about any of these birds. I've never seen them before. I've certainly never heard them before. All I know is that they're extremely rare. But I guess that knowing the calls could help you dig one out one day once you get extremely lucky. So let's have a listen again and I'll tell you what each of the calls sort of reminds me of. So that one was Siberian Blue Robin. It's quite a low frequency call, given sing with with each noise given singly or occasionally in sort of little groups of, of two or three. It's it doesn't remind me of any birds actually, but what it does remind me of is when you have a can of beer or a can of pop, and you pull the ring pull back as if you're going to open it, but let it slide off your finger and it clicks back onto the can. To me, it really sounds like that. So it's quite a sort of a dry and metallic sound. Siberian ruby throat, I guess the most likely of the three that you'll come across. Again, that's quite a low frequency sound. It's less of a tuck than a sort of chur chur chur. And to me, it sounds a bit like it has elements of house sparrow in it, but it also puts me in mind of a sort of a distant yappy dog. So I'm going to go with house sparrow yappy dog hybrid for that one. And the last one there was Rufus-tailed Robin. Now, if anyone out there is familiar with knock-migging, <clears throat> the calls of nighttime migrating robins and spotted flycatcher especially, to me, the Rufus-tailed Robin calls sound a lot like spotted flycatcher and, and robin calls. And that's no surprise because they're probably reasonably closely related to one another. Uh, when you zoom in to the sonogram for the Rufus-tailed Robin calls, you'll see that there's quite a strong sort of downslurred element to each call. And on some of the notes, you can hear that if you listen really hard for it. But I would struggle, I think, in the field to sort of, to get, if I couldn't see the birds, to get past 
that being the call of a robin or a spotted flycatcher. But if you'd seen something that obviously wasn't one of those and you heard that call coming out of the bushes, then I guess you've got grounds to start getting pretty excited. So they were the calls of, in order, Siberian blue robin, Siberian ruby throat and rufous-tailed robin. Some of the most desirable rarities ever to turn up in this country. I sincerely hope that I can use my newfound knowledge of these calls in anger one day and that you can too. I did learn a couple of other things when I was going through the uh, sound files for these species. So first of all, as well as having the call that we've had a listen to already, Siberian ruby throat also has a call that's very like Siberian chiffchaff. In fact, the frequency range is almost identical to most Siberian chiffchaffs. The only difference that I can hear without delving in too deep is that ruby throat calls last a little bit longer. So here's the Siberian chiffchaff-like call of a Siberian ruby throat. So if you see something that... Obviously not a chiff-chaff hopping around on the ground calling like this, then uh, time to get excited. And last but certainly not least, I also learned that Rufus Tail Robin's song is really, really cool. It sounds a bit like a, a chaffinch who's forgotten the words after taking some performance-enhancing drugs. Hopefully you'll see what I mean. Okay, well, they were some bird noises. I haven't decided what they are. Future me is going to do that, but you'll have heard what future me decided in the past. Uh, so, <laughs> well, we're talking of time travel. We wanted the more birdery questions now, so let's launch straight into it. What moment from your birding life would you go back to if you had a time machine, and why? I I have so many to choose from for various different reasons, and I couldn't choose one, so I'm not going to. I'm just, okay. going to list, I'm just going to list off loads. Um, do that. So um, I guess the most mind-blowing thing was possibly my first day at Batumi in Georgia. We've seen the Raptor Passage. That was just incredible. That's just yeah. When, when, when I think back to that and how I just you just sat there looking at these tens of thousands of honey buzzards going over. That was just incredible. Um, and I could happily relive that that day and that feeling over and over again so that'd be that'd be good and yeah that that sort of that probably beats finding a rarity to be honest just 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 experiencing that that, that, that migration and yeah you can get that in quite a few spots around the world equivalent raptor migration so yeah if you if you never the raptor migration go and do it um other things what would i do differently if i've got a time machine um uh, or go back to i think i would go back to when i was ringing in a lat and I would take a few feathers from a few things that we caught for future DNA analysis, so I could look <laughs> back and tick them now. Oh, we caught we caught some tiny reed warblers, and I've I've never actually gone back and figured out what they were. But yeah, really, I mean, top reed warblers with wings shorter than than Bly's reed, wow. okay. and uh, and they were obviously small birds. So I'd like to find out what they were. They'd probably get some uh, Israeli birders ringing in there, so now we know what those are. We are inundated with calls from Israeli birds. If Israeli birders, it's got at the SOC, so there won't be anything new there. <laughs> uh, and I thought a uh, couple of couple of birds that I missed finding because of stupidity. So the first one was years and years ago. Was a, um, if anyone's familiar with Fair Isle, I was walking to uh, North River. And there was two blokes standing at North River. I thought, oh, no, forget it. I'll just go to South River. And as I was walking from a few yards from North to South River, a buddy Bunting flew past, and, the, and these two guys went, "Rusty Bunting," and uh, and I've still never found a Rusty Bunting. <laughs> so um, I'd go and just stand next to them and expecting yeah. to expecting to see a Rusty Bunting before they did. Uh, and um, and possibly a Swainson's thrush on Fula. Okay. Uh, if, if anyone knows Fula, we we basically got to one croft, which was the um, the only croft, and well, 
we could get we could get a Wi-Fi signal by standing outside this croft. So stupidly, we, we got to this croft after being you know, burning our way there. And I thought, oh, I'll check my emails. And bizarrely, I've got <laughs> some emails. Uh, so I stood there check, you know, checking these emails uh, instead of looking at me. And, and the Dan Brown walked off and walked off into the uh, into the next croft of famous Wainston's Rush. And we've been together all morning. So um, actually, not even that. A few years before that, you probably don't even know that uh, Yana, yeah, Yanni and Hannah Alto from Finland. I was I was with them on Fula again. Fula, hate Fula. <laughs> uh, and uh, I've been burdened with them most of the two weeks. And on the final day, we got to the um, we'd been together all day and got back up to the Hamburn. And they said we're going to go back along the coast. Uh, and I said, well, it's the last day. I want, I really want to have another crack at finding Palace's Gropper, so I'm going to go back up all the Irish beds. And within five minutes, he radioed me saying, we have a theory. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that that's what I would change. I would go, no, I shall come with you to the coast. <laughs> why, don't, why don't you go and do the iris beds? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll go and look in the boatyard. Yeah. So one was... of the other questions I like to ask people is, um, what's the biggest birding blunder that you've ever made? Now, I think... If I'm going to continue to ask people these questions, it's only fair that I share the blunders that I make as well. So last week when I was on Sandy, we were we'd finished birding. We were back in the house, and there was a load of grey legs in the field. And at the front of the field, closer to us, was a little bunch of pink feet. And in amongst these pink feet was an even smaller goose, like tiny goose, with an all orange bill. And I was looking at this when I was on the phone to my other half and I said that's a that's a little juvenile white front that's nice and I said that to my mates and took a photo of it and put it on Twitter hey juvenile white front that's nice and a lot of people said why isn't that just a grey leg <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as I looked at it I said, oh yeah that, that's exactly what it is <laughs> yeah uh, so uh, that's uh, that's the nightmare I mean, obviously, everyone makes mistakes all the time, and sometimes you make mistakes in front of your friends, and that's okay because everyone has a chuckle about it. But making making a mistake on Twitter, I think that's there's a whole there's a whole bunch of people who almost exclusively very nicely put you right, but it's it, it feels pretty awkward. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, <laughs> definitely agree with that. It's um, I, like you say, you, you make mistakes all the time. I make mistakes every day, you know, all, all the time. If you're not if you're not making mistakes, you're just not overburdening, you know. It's mm. um, but I think the one that the one that comes to mind if if was was only was it last year? I think it was last year. I had um, I'm going to say fairly brief views, but you know, have I, have I, I flushed a night? Well, it's calling. I heard a nightingale species calling right, okay. down at Spurn, and I was and it was was it mid May, and it flushed out. And it went and it flew across some sort of open ground and landed up in an elder bush, and it was quite distant. And I only got my bins, and I looked at it and I just thought, yeah, that's, that's a common nightingale. I don't see anything on that to make me think it's a thrush nightingale. It looks just like a common nightingale. Yep, so I radioed it. Yeah, it was a common nightingale. Uh, and then it flew into, into a big elder bush and disappeared. And I, and I sort of, we sat there for a bit, and of course it never appeared again. And I thought, well, that's it. It's a common nightingale. No problem. Off we go. And uh, later that day, um, Paul Willoughby sent me some pictures that his, uh, his kid Thomas had taken, saying, are you, uh, are you sure about that? <laughs> <laughs> I was like... Uh, um, it does look a bit odd. Um, right. So we, after, and he sent me some more photos through and stuff, you're just like, yeah, I think I've cocked up here. That's a thrush nightingale, isn't it? But I mean, yeah, the, the, all the observers who were down there at the time had, had, had ID'd it as a thrush nightingale. It, it's, mm-hmm. And then they started singing as well, which which helped. Yeah, that is a help, um, isn't it? Yeah, but some of the photos, you look at it, you're thinking, that's obviously a thrush nightingale. Why? why but in, in in sunlight, it just it changed appearance completely. But like you say, um, you, know, you you make mistakes all the time, and sometimes you the, the vast majority of the time you correct yourself. Yeah, indeed, it's those yeah. times when you yeah. you've blurted something out before you've managed to correct yourself that you uh, you end up feeling embarrassed about. Yeah, I think being a tour leader as well, or, or doing some tour leading, it, it kind of because you're sort of you're conscious that you want to get you, you, the clients onto birds as quickly as possible. You do shout stuff out really quickly, and a lot of the times before you've really identified it properly. Now, most of the time you get it right, but sometimes you don't. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, then you have to sort of backtrack and to say, "Oh no, I'm really sorry." Now, you know, you obviously hear stories of of 
of uh, this is the controversial bit. You hear stories of guys who don't do that backtracking, which is very yeah. naughty. Um, so no, I'd always basically just say no, no, my fault. You know, that's not a, it's not a whatever. It's, uh, yeah. it's something different. Yeah, I, I I do that quite a lot. I think it's I've done quite a lot of sea watching recently with someone who's quite new to it, and I think it more than anything else it sets a good example just to be able to say, hang on, I've made a mess of that. I've yeah. spoke far too soon on that one. Yeah, yeah definitely. You know, the thing is, nobody cares if you're yeah. wrong. Yeah. You know, if if you're wrong and you and you 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 own up and you own it and you say, oh god, yeah, that was that, that was don't know what I was thinking, then nobody cares. It's it's when you sort of you double down and you and you you, you dig your heels in and you, you know and you just start making stuff up that people that's that's when you people start. To I, I, I agree completely. Nobody cares. Nobody really judges anyone else too harshly. I don't think. Do you think that that's obvious to new young birders, perhaps? That ultimately we 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 don't hold it against them. Um. Yeah. Good question. I think it's different as you get older and of course it's different for every for every person everyone's got a different way of dealing with things you know I'm, I'm a different person now to what I was when I was 15 you know when, when you're 15 you, you you know I was I was I was quite good when I was 15 you know, a lot a lot a lot of kids are if you start birding when you're you know six seven eight years old yeah. by the time you're 15 yeah. you're really good um, and you want to prove that to to your peers Mm-hmm. who are inevitably older than you well they were when i was young anyway yeah, and now, yeah. nowadays it seems that there's, there's actually i don't know maybe i don't know, i'm looking from the outside at this as well you know looking at twitter and that and it, it seems to be that there's quite a lot of young birders around even though you, you don't necessarily see them in, in, in twitches or anything because they're, they're maybe they're not that bothered about twitching i don't know but um yeah i think sometimes it does seem that maybe they take it too hard on themselves or worry too much about what other people are thinking, and 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 yes, some people are idiots. You know, if if, if some if someone does actually say something negative, and, and mean it, then then that's just them being an idiot. You know, but it's it's sort of a I, I don't think it's wise to tar everyone with with that sort of stick really, and just sort of say oh they you know the whole birding community is against me. It's, it's just that's just not true. Yeah, yeah, I I think you know. I've made some mistakes in front of people and, you know, generally people, well, in fact, I've never had anything other than a positive response to that. You know, people said, oh, you know, better to get the news out. And actually, it's a grey lag, but, you know, we all make these mistakes and (laughs) that sort of thing. You know, people say some nice supportive things. I guess, I mean, maybe maybe it's just, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just my, my dread of people finding out that, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that good a birder or whatever it is, you know. Maybe, maybe I, I'm sort of projecting this onto everyone else while why I'm asking that question. But, um, well, I, I, I gave know. up, I gave up commenting on bird forum for well, a various, various other reasons, but also the fact that I've just got so much stuff wrong, and I've just got, I just got fed up with myself at being wrong. <laughs> and I just thought this is ridiculous, so, so I'm just going to stop doing it. I, I mean that's a very noble reason to to stop commenting on Birdform, but as you say, there are a million others. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that, that would be if I could speak to any young birder now, I would say to them, never comment on Bird Forum. What's yeah. the best bit of birding advice you've ever been given? It's really difficult because I don't remember. I think it's I, I, I sort of grew up with I grew up birding with a, a group of guys in, in Wolverhampton. Um, the local sort of local birders in Wolverhampton, who were great. Yeah, they treated me fantastically, um, and I can't I can't remember a single single sort of nugget of advice that they, that 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 they gave really. Um, it was just sort of the general, just being with them, just going birding with them really was was yeah. was, was the key. I don't yeah I don't, I don't I don't recall any kind of single single nugget of wisdom. Did we just pretend I didn't ask you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could we could we could spin it into some kind of you know general birding with 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 uh, with with peers of um, what's the word when 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 you know they're sort of um, people who are older than you teaching yeah. you stuff. Yeah, I can't think of the word. Wisdom is the word that springs to mind. You you absorb people's wisdom. Yes, yes, yes. Something, yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, well, that's obviously not going anywhere, so let's move on from that one. <laughs> um, you may well have hinted on this earlier on. What do you think the next first for Scotland is going to be? When and where and who and why? If you, I, if you can. What, what did I write on our little magic list on that boat many years ago? Oh. Or is I that gonna... scrub from your memory because it's too painful? Well, I think most of the things you wrote have been found now. <laughs> <laughs> I th- well, I, I'll tell you what I didn't write. I didn't write Long Big Buzzard. No. Nope. Oh, and I wouldn't have predicted that for Scotland at all. So that's... Um... No, that was always going to be a, a Kent one, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Kent, Suffolk. That, that's uh, quite quite an eye up in that one. Mm. Uh, so anyway, so from now, I don't know. I mean, crikey. I still think Black Throat Centre is going to turn up at some point. But it's um... for, for the listeners. That was one of my suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think I think we shared that suggestion. <laughs> it's just it's just you know yes. So well, this was this was back in the day before Cybex Centre had turned up. So yeah, I think was, you yeah. had Cybe and I had Black Throated. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Ah, well in that case, yes, I, I was right. <laughs> <laughs> I can see how that rolls off your tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's it's the malt. It's it sort of loosens the tongue a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, let's go, let's go with black throated rack then. And I mean, uh, you, the thing is, is I mean, in Britain as a whole, but in Scotland especially, you you, you can't you can't ever bet against Fair Isle. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it, it, you just yeah. If you never forget Fair Isle. I think I think it's as good a bet as anywhere else. You know, one of the species I had on. On my list of next, did we go for the seven for some reason? The seven next first, and I chose Pygmy Old, and I envisaged I couldn't envisage that turning up anywhere other than Fair Isle. Yeah, to be honest. Yeah, I mean it's, yeah, it's going to be a long time before that happens. Not the not the wisest choice. But... Well, do you know what? I mean, I I definitely remember. I would have I would have certainly scoffed at that quite loudly. Yeah, Pygmy you did. Yeah. yeah, but but you know some of the other things that, that turn up nowadays, you, you think actually maybe that's not as maybe that's not as silly as I uh, as I once thought. So you're suggesting that I was ahead of my time? I'm being polite. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. Um, I'll just move on. <laughs> what would you put into a birding room 101? This is your opportunity to be controversial again. Yeah. I, know. I, don't, I don't know. I mean, there's certain types of people. There's certain... The trouble is when it comes to that, it's all about people, isn't it? A birding room one on one is still people that you that you'd sort of or, or things that people have done. Mm. I mean, there's there's nothing. I mean, birds are brilliant. They're, you know, bird, a bird could never offend me that much. I want to put it into room one one. I mean, other people have suggested weather forecasts, for example. Oh yeah, absolutely. Scratch all that weather forecasts, and 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 me trying to comment on weather forecasts. <laughs> I still do it, and I don't know why I do it because I'm useless at it, and. You know, you look at you look at these things weeks in advance, and and they never happen. So yeah, I, I don't know why I bother. I don't know why any of us bother. Do you think that we grew up at a time when we could look at weather and quite safely predict arrivals of birds, and those times have gone? This is something that I talked about in the last podcast as well. There simply aren't the birds out there to allow us to be able to predict when when we're going to get large arrivals of birds so we need actually incredibly specific conditions certainly to bring the things that are closer that breed closer in europe i think yeah we we don't seem to get these certainly up here we don't get these big falls of red starts wind chats pied flycatchers like we used to yeah no and and most of those birds you know they're, they're sort of yeah yeah they're, they're just not there anymore are they yeah, you know, the decline the decline in European birds is just it's just dramatic. So we, mm. yeah, we're just not going to get those those numbers anymore. You know, we we are sort of looking for stuff from much further east where populations are probably still still doing all right. So yeah, I think you know it's what was it? someone was saying to me today, uh, the vector that the um, the recent cyb th- well the dead cyb thrush on on Papua the uh, the white thrush on North Ron. Was there another one as well? Was there something else somewhere else? The thrush. A PG tips turned up on the same day. There's a PG tips on Fair. I mean, that's such a narrow. When you look at the the vector that is, that is, it's it's what 20 miles wide, 25 yeah. miles wide. Yeah. You know, and three megas turn up in that on that that vector. I mean, that's crazy. So, 
I think there's, I think there's, yeah, weather obviously influences where birds arrive. I mean, something like a, you know, all, all these Siberian stuff, um, they're not, yeah, there's, there's no weather system on Earth that can pull them in all the way from Siberia yeah. and then dump them in one day onto, yeah. onto into they're, they're, they're all pretty much here already, aren't they? They're all coming anyway. Yeah. It's just the, the local weather, local weather factors influence where, where they drop in. Yeah, I mean, going back to the sort of the the, the, one, the room one hundred one thing, I, I suspect, yeah, trying to predict what's going to be and where it's fun, but it causes it, it just it just adds stress levels, and it adds it just that, adds disappointment as well. Yeah, do you think there's a lot to be said for just going birding? Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely. certainly been my approach recently. So what we go up to Sunday, which probably isn't the best place for rare birds, but it's a fantastic place for, for birding, and we've we the first few years we went there you know we totally had our rare heads on and we just expected it to be covered in rarities all over the place and over the years we've really really dialed back our expectations now and you know it's very much go for a nice walk do yes. some nice birding yeah and we come we come back from that holiday much happier these days than we always used to yeah yeah no there's a lot to be said for that i think that's sort of one of the reasons why you know i i stopped doing fooler uh, was because yeah we you know we had some good birds but it was always a bit disappointing you know it, which sounds crazy when you look at the over the years that we did it the, you know the, the rares that we got were great but we never had that that first for Britain you know we never had that yank warbler and those are the things that we were going there for yeah it didn't happen so you think oh it's just a bit disappointing really which is crazy because we had some, we had some great times you know we had we had some great trips up there so yeah just 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 going birding there's a lot to be said for that while we're in reflective mood with an eye on the clock if you could be reincarnated yes as any bird what would you choose uh this is probably one of the easiest questions <laughs> well, i've saved it for last then yeah it's definitely um eleanor's falcon oh okay because you like pulling the wings off birds and leaving them in crevices that is the only reason <laughs> yeah yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I don't, it doesn't matter that it's a stunning bird. You know, it traverses the globe in migration. It breeds in, in beautiful areas and winters in Madagascar. That doesn't I'm not bother about any of that. It rips the wings off small passerines and it traps them in rocky crevices. That's what, you know, that's you could, you, that's an achievable dream. Yeah, you could do that. <laughs> I mean, you probably wouldn't get away with it, but you could no, do it. No, I, no, I, yeah. If I if I sort of said to people, I'm indulging in my inner Eleanor's falcon, as a sort of sat in a sat in a rocky crevice with uh, with pulling the wings off sedge warblers, they probably wouldn't um, probably wouldn't go down too well. I think but that's, no. that's a similar choice. Yeah, I sort of waver between swift and peregrine, and quite often the idea of all that migration puts me off, and the idea of just being a majestic stooping peregrine is, is pretty exciting i think that yeah. probably ticks quite a few of your eleanor's falcon boxes as well yeah definitely but i think it's just just the and they're quite they're quite a lazy migrant aren't they they're, you know they're, they're late arriving there they mind you they leave late as well but um they um you know they fly they fly over africa but they're they're such good flyers it's it, i bet it's no hardship for them at all you know i remember seeing one on the highland i was in the highlands of ethiopia um, and we just looked up. Well, yeah, we're up in the Bali Mountains, and so we're pretty high up on the roof of Africa. And you look up, and there's this speck going over. It's a dark morph Eleanor's falcon, mm. and it's just migrating down to down to Madagascar. And you're thinking that's that's crackers. Yeah, these birds are crossing Africa, and no one's seen them. So yeah, yeah, that's that's what I would. That's what I'd come back as. It's a great choice. And on that note, we're going to go and listen to some more bird noises now. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed listening to Paul's controversial answers to my attempts to be to ask controversial questions. But before we do anything else, here are some more bird noises. In the last podcast, we listened to yellow-browed warbler calls and we compared them to the calls of cultists, which can be quite similar. But now we're getting later on into the autumn, we're going to listen to some yellow-browed warbler calls again. And this time we're going to compare them to something much rarer. Now, until quite recently, the Hume's yellow-browed warbler, or Hume's leaf warbler, was considered to be the same species as the yellow-browed warbler. But they've always had consistently different calls. And Hume's warbler is a sort of typical but rare late autumn visitor to eastern Scotland in particular and the islands. So let's have a listen to see how you can separate these two species on call, because 
visually they can be very similar indeed. So first we're going to hear yellow-browed warbler and then Hume's warbler. So the first thing we notice is that yellow-browed warbler is much higher pitched, it's more, it's higher frequency than Hume's warbler call. And the second thing that's immediately obvious to me is that the yellow-browed warbler call is sort of delivered in quite a relaxed fashion, so you can hear all the elements of the call. You can hear it saying, sweet. And the Hume's warbler's call is delivered much faster. Structurally, similar elements are there to the yellow-browed warbler, but because it's delivered so fast, it sounds more like, chewit, chewit. Chew it. Let's have a listen again. So there you have it. That's probably the easiest way to separate a Hume's warbler from a yellow-browed warbler. I think, as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, if you are lucky enough to bump into something like this in the autumn... It's really worth getting a recording of the call if you can. Don't hesitate to get your mobile phone out. You'll be surprised at what you can achieve with a mobile because the call is definitely the best way for separating Hume's warbler from yellow-browed warbler. So that's it for another podcast. Thanks again for listening. Thanks to Paul for giving some really interesting answers to my uncontroversial questions. Uh, While I'm thanking people, thanks, of course, to the SOC for letting me do this. And thank you to Zeno Canto for letting me use recordings that thousands of people have, have deposited there to help make this a little bit more interesting, hopefully. The individual recorders are credited in the podcast notes. Just while we're on the subject of notes, a few things to mention from an SOC point of view. We've got our annual conference coming up. That's on the 27th, 25th to the 27th of November in Pitlockery. I don't know if there are tickets available anymore, if there are any spaces left, but I wouldn't be surprised if there are because it's quite a big venue. It's going to be an excellent event again, as they always are. And another thing to mention is that we now have digital membership available. So if you're interested in receiving Scottish birds, for example, I mean... I have to say this, but I genuinely mean it. It's an excellent journal. If you're interested in receiving a digital version of that, as well as all the other benefits of being a member of the SOC, take a look on the SOC website and check out our digital membership offer. And until the next time, enjoy the rest of the autumn and good birding.